There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus has done these signs. He's done these miracles. Many believed in him, and yet, frankly, startlingly, it says Jesus didn't rely on those professing belief. There's such a thing, ladies and gentlemen, as shallow belief. We will find later in John's gospel when Jesus comes out and just before a multitude of his disciples declares who he is, who he is, who he, no holds barred, and many of them disciples left him, left him. One of the greatest hindrances we have, ladies and gentlemen, to believe that God is there for us. Isn't that we can't believe what God can do? Isn't that we don't believe that God loves us? Isn't that we don't believe the declarations of the Scripture about him? It's when we, we see these things about God, but then we say, we look at these things and we say, for me? I mean, I could see God expressing himself in all the reality of who he is in Vincent's life. I could see him coming to Vincent. I could see him coming to Hunter. I could see him coming to Alana. <coughs> but I know me. I know I wouldn't. I would disdain me if I knew if, if I was God and I knew what I was like. One of the greatest hindrances to believing and trusting in God's loyalty and aggressive love for us is we know ourselves. And we always have that accuser of the brethren telling us why we are not worthy of God's unmerited attention. But God says, I love mercy. I love don't listen to the voice that disqualifies you because God says, I qualify you. My son paid sin's penalty for you on the cross. And if that isn't enough proof, there isn't enough proof. But they believed in him. They saw the signs. They heard his declarations. He had just cleansed the temple. But Jesus didn't rely on them and then this fellow Nicodemus comes, and Nicodemus, in the narrative, in the entire narrative of John's gospel, he shows up three times. He shows up here when he comes to Jesus. You have to be from God, or you couldn't be doing these signs. And then halfway through the narrative, he stands up in the Sanhedrin to defend Jesus, and he gets shouted down. And then he's one of the two men who received the body of Jesus from the cross. He and Joseph of Arimathea to care for the body of Jesus. He finally comes out publicly. Three years later, he makes his real public declaration that he is a follower of Jesus. And then we have Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He's still speaking. And this is where we're going to, this statement of Jesus really governs the narrative from chapter 1 all the way through into chapter 12 
which is the evangelistic segment of John's gospel. Chapters 1 through 12 is how to come into the kingdom. Chapters 13 through 17 is how to operate in the kingdom. But we're going to see this. And what does Jesus say? That most famous verse in the New Testament, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God does not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name, the reputation, the claims of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. And this is the lens that we can look through for John chapters 1 through 12. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. End quote. <coughs> Nicodemus came to Jesus because he was a man who loved and sought truth. The Holy Spirit had already done a work in here in him that gave him that kind of a heart, that kind of a spirit. But he also took a good deal of time embracing this and coming out being willing to pay the price for embracing this truth and being embraced by it. The last part of chapter 3 is about John the Baptist, who was just the opposite. John the Baptist went ahead of Jesus as the herald of Messiah, of Jesus. He baptizes Jesus. He witnesses he hears the word. He witnesses God, the Holy Spirit, descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and he hears the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am, in whom I am well pleased. He voices that to his disciples about Jesus. He says of Jesus, John chapter one: "Behold the Lamb of before his own disciples. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And in the balance of chapter three, you have John's disciples because he's still in public ministry. Jesus has his public ministry. There are disciples following him, but John is still doing his heralding work. He has disciples, and some of his disciples come and say, John, this fellow, more are coming to him than to us. Doesn't that upset you? Not one bit. No, 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 no. That's what we want to happen and John, John the Baptist, from before he was even born, when Mary walked into the home of Zacharias, the priest, and Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, she was in the sixth month of her pregnancy, and Mary spoke, and at the sound of Mary's voice, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb. And the scripture says, this is pretty shocking, he was filled with the Spirit from inside of his mother's womb. He's been doing his job since the moment he heard that voice and leaped and was filled with the Spirit 
and he is telling his disciples, we want his ministry to grow. I want mine to shrink. If that shrinkage point means his will grow, he is loving every bit of it. Why? He loves the truth. He loves the truth, and it will cost him his life, his physical life. And then we have the narrative that we three Sundays ago looked at with Jesus having done these signs, these miracles in Jerusalem, now is going back to Galilee. But he doesn't do the standard Jewish from Judea to Galilee trek, which is go out and cross the Jordan River, go up the east side of the Jordan River to your past Samaria, and then recross the, the Jordan back into Galilee so you can avoid the, the horrible place called Samaria, where the Samaritans are, who have their own temple, by the way, near the city, the town of Sychar on Mount Gerizim. They, have, they are the most despised people, ethnic group on the planet as far as the Jews are concerned. They hate the Samaritans more than they hate, they hate the Greeks and the Romans. And Jesus, it says in the narrative, must go. Through, he went through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Now, you hear that? Well, okay, so, yeah, Galileans who had, or Judeans who had to get between Judea and Galilee in a hurry, they would hold their nose and, well, he gets to the well by the town of Sychar. The disciples go in to buy some food, and he's sitting there, and this despised woman of a despised ethnic group comes to the well. She's coming in the middle of the day, as we noted three Sundays ago. Why? Because she doesn't want to face the tongues and stares of the other woman. She's been married five times, and she's living with a man now who's not her husband. And so she comes in the middle of the day to get her water instead of the standard at dawn time when the ladies all go together to the well to get, take water, get water because that's their girl time together. And it's all, she doesn't want to spend time with them because they're going to tear her up. So she's here in the middle of the day. She comes and there's this Jewish fellow sitting there by the well. And to her shock, he asks her for a drink of water. What? And of course, I'll allow you to read the narrative yourself, but he starts sharing the reality of who he is with her. Oh, well, if you had asked of me, I would have given you a drink of water that would have satisfied slaked your thirst forever. I would, be, I, would, I would plant an artesian well, a fountain gushing up water that would slake your thirst forever. What? How is that possible? Well, go call your husband and come here and I'll tell you. Oh, well, <coughs> I don't have a husband. Well, you spoke truly. You've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. She doesn't run away. She simply says, uh, there's no way you could know that unless it's a divine thing. We have been told that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. And she immediately, the disciples are just showing up, she immediately runs into Sychar, goes to the town square, and says to the men standing around in the town square, 
this man out at the well told me all the things, the hidden things of my life. Could he be the Messiah? Would you go out there and quiz him and give me your expert opinion? And they do. And Jesus and the disciples spend two more days in that city, and that city turns to Christ. The least likely person in the least likely ethnic group all turn to Christ. And then Jesus goes on, two days later, goes on to Galilee. And while he is there, well, let me read the last portion of the narrative about the Samaritans. This is chapter 4, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to, to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Even us Samaritans the Savior of the world. Jesus qualifies the least qualified, and they come running into the kingdom. That member, that rabbi of Israel, Jesus calls Nicodemus the rabbi of Israel, that member of the Sanhedrin, he takes three years to come out fully. They're there in two days. A great revival in that least likely city with the least likely people. Now, after two days, he, Jesus, departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So what's it say? He had done one, we have one miracle stated in Galilee. He had done one miracle in Galilee. In response to his mother's faith, he had turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's the only miracle, only sign he had done in Galilee. Then he goes to Judea, and because there are people that don't know who he is, don't understand how disqualified they are, they are, uh, 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 he, he's from a far country, he's from a far place, so he, he's a lot more likely to be the Messiah than my next-door neighbor. He did all these signs, and the Galileans who were there saw those signs that they didn't have the faith to incite formerly. They saw those signs. He's now come back to Galilee, and the Galileans are suddenly open to his message. They're open to the reality of who he is as they had never been before because they saw the signs that he did in Judea in response to the, the faith of those who didn't know who he was. Verse 46, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had turned the water, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum will become the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's that town on the Sea of Galilee, the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, 
which is the hometown, or it's the town where Peter and Andrew and James and John have their fishing business right there. But right now, he's a day and a half, two days walk. In Cana, you're a day and a half, two days walk from Capernaum. And this nobleman from Capernaum has sought Jesus out in Cana. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, to Jesus, and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. This is a rebuke. You have to see a sign to believe. What is inciting the Galileans who had disdained him before to now perhaps embrace him? They saw the signs. And he's laying this in this man's lap. Is this you? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. Now, this is a day and a half, two days walk. Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Okay, I will believe that you can do this You don't have to be in the room with my son. You can do this. Now, it's interesting. There's a parallel miracle that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 8, by the way. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes down off having done the Sermon on the Mount. He cleanses a leper, and then as he walks into Capernaum, he's met by by a centurion, a Roman centurion. My servant is at my home, writhing in pain in a bed, would you, would you heal him? And Jesus says, certainly, I will come to your house right now and do it. And you, oh, no, 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 you don't need to come to my house. I know how authority works. I'm a centurion. I say to my soldiers under my command, you do this, and they do it. I know how authority works. You just have to speak a word. And Jesus is astonished at his faith. And says to the people around, I've not seen such faith in Israel. The day is coming when people will come from north, south, east, and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, enjoying glory. And the sons of the kingdom, the ones who were near, not far away, will be cast out into outer darkness. And he, the centurion went home and his servant was healed. This man will go home. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour after sunrise, about one in the afternoon or two in the afternoon. Your son was healed. So 
So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Jesus is in Cana talking about a boy two days walk away. Your son lives. And that boy is healed. Your son lives. Then he inquired. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. What had incited the Galilean's faith was seeing the signs, the miracles that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. So now he comes back to his home area of Galilee with a greater reputation, greater authority, and they have more insight into him. It doesn't matter that he was our neighbor. He actually could still be the one sent from God. Now we come in chapter 5, verse 1, to one of the most shocking passages in the Scripture. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus returns to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, simple yes, no question, do you want to be made well? That's a yes, no question. But the man doesn't answer yes, he doesn't answer no. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. I can never quite get there in time. Now, folks, we're going to step back and speculate. This guy's been in this infirm condition for 38 years. Now, we don't know that he's been hanging out by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. But it's probably pretty likely he's a well-known guy. He's probably been a fixture there for quite a long time. And Jesus asks him the simple question, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't answer with a simple yes. He answers with an excuse, a reason why it can't and has not happened. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day, oh no, oh no, oh no, was the Sabbath. The Jews, meaning the Jewish leadership, those governing the temple, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Okay, we're going to enforce the Sabbath law. That's he answered them, he who made me well said to me, 
take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Stop and think about that for a minute. The man who healed me, he who made me well, as I suggested, this guy has probably been a fixture there. They've all seen him for a long time. He who made me well told me to take up my bed and walk, and they say, who told you to take up your bed and walk? Not who made you well. If he was made well, if he was healed, isn't that an act of God? This is a divine healing, an act of God. These are the religious leaders governing the activity in the temple. Are they interested in what God is doing? Folks, not who made you well, but who told you to take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. This man was healed sovereignly. Jesus didn't respond to his faith. He had no faith. All he knows is some guy stepped out of the crowd and said, do you want to be made well? And Jesus sovereignly healed him of a 38-year infirmity. Afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple the next day or later that day, and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, this may or may not suggest that his infirmity had come from an act of sin, but he is. what is Jesus doing? He's warning, you better walk with God. You better disdain sin, lest a worse thing come upon you. But now this man knows something he didn't know before. This is Jesus who did this. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He had done a miracle on the Sabbath. God violated the Sabbath. Because he had violated the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, we're going to back up for a moment here. We're going to pick up with this next portion next week. But let me just say, what had Jesus said back in chapter 3 that I said was an, a lens through which we are to look, view John chapters 1 through 12? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
the hour is coming, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and his disciples, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Chapter 19, the fourth. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds might be clearly seen that they have been done in God. The Jewish leadership of the temple. A man announces to them, a miracle, a sign from God. A miracle has been done. Uh, miracles are done by God. They're not interested. Are they coming to the light or are they stiff-arming the light? The Jewish religious leadership governing the temple was not interested in what God was doing. They, in fact, put Jesus on the hit list because he broke one of their temple rules. Instead of saying, well, you know, God gets to set aside the Sabbath law when it comes to a choice between will I keep the Sabbath or serve my neighbor? God always chooses serving the neighbor. What kind of faith do we have? What kind of faith, what sort of responses did Jesus get when he spoke the truth and did the truth in front of him? What kind of responses did he, he got all sorts of responses. Look at your own life experience through Bible eyes. There are going to be people like the woman at the, the well that we think are miles and miles and miles and miles away from ever being welcomed by God, they're going to hear the gospel and and one giant leap. We watch them being welcomed by God into his kingdom. A giant work of God. And there are other people that we have family members or whatever that we no, have been exposed to gospel truth over and over, and we think, in our unbiblically educated, oh, they're a baby step away from stepping into the kingdom, but they never take that baby step. Ladies and gentlemen, every single person who is brought into the kingdom is a resurrection. We were dead. And he gave us life. We were blind and he gave us sight. He did the work. It is an act of God when anybody is brought. Don't make a judgment about people's likelihood. Who's likely and who's not. God is the resurrection God. We are all unqualified, disqualified, we're all, we all love darkness rather than light until he gives us 
that desire for truth and life. And then he brings us into the kingdom. And again, as I quoted every single Sunday, James chapter 1, it is of his own will he brought us forth, brought us to birth. It is of his own will that he brought us to birth and made us the first fruits of his kingdom. We are that new tomato plucked off the vine, that first one. And what do you do? Hey, white bee, come here. Smell this. Hey, kiddos, smell this. That's what God does with us. When it says we are the first fruits, it means he delights in us. He revels in us. I'll take that. Yes, sir. Psalm 34. That's right. What is the very first of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you think like a Pharisee, hey, I've already got my pockets filled with all the righteousness God asks, you're not looking for it. It's God fills the people with empty pockets. He, he grants his kingdom to those who have understand their poverty. We need to be standing shoulder to shoulder with our Lord as he is reaching out to people. So we are seeing his act in our ministry. We should be looking at it from his standpoint, not our expectations. As we tend to follow what the world says is the, is the mode of operation, and it's not. Well, we're coming to the Lord's table, which is the expression by the Lord Jesus give granted to us, which is why did Jesus give us this event to be a regular practice in the church is to bring us back to square one. What is the Lord's Supper about? It is about Jesus paid it all. Jesus got it done, not me, not me, 